and welcome to Radio Brews News. I can feel a podcast coming on, and that means that I'm joined by my good friend, executive producer, co-host, uh, all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, good to be back with you. It is Matt. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Welcome back. Regularly, I'm going to put my, I'm going to put them on the table right now and say regular. If this goes out uh, this weekend, it will be three in a row. So uh, we're, we're certainly living up to our uh, New Year's resolution, Prof. Do you think the uh, the listeners, our loyal listeners, of which there are now many, and we can now count them, um, do they appreciate the fact that we generally tend to release these on a on a weekend when it's perhaps a little bit quieter, but when perhaps they have a bit of time to download them and then they listen to them on the way to work or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, there's some feedback. Uh, I, I just presume that I, I do try and get them out on a Friday, but sometimes it's uh, the weekend when the editing um, takes place. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, if listeners, if you have some feedback, of course, you know, um, getting it regular would be uh, a start. Getting it regularly on a day, that's the, uh, that, that, that'll be the next little bit of territory we seek to conquer. That's it. We may, we may need to double up and have uh, two hamsters on separate wheels. Yeah, but th- things are going well. And as you said, people are listening. Uh, we changed our um, podcasting software. We're now with a uh, nice little organization called Libsyn, um, which means that we can track not only how many people are listening, and it's into the hundreds, um, but we can also track where they're coming from. And Prof, uh, obviously, um, you know, everybody, anyone that's listened to us would just imagine from our voices that we're big down under. But apparently, uh, the um, we, we are truly international. Uh, we've got a following uh, in uh, the United States, in uh, New Zealand, as you'd expect. But apparently, Radio Brews News is very big in Brazil. Well, there you go. Who would have thought? Who Bra- would have thought? Brazilians down under. Brazilians, <laughs> Brazilians down under. So I think uh, we, we're going to have to try and source a uh, Gypsy Kings version of the beer barrel polka, just for our uh, South American listeners. That's it. Do you think maybe is it uh, their beer culture over there, or is it expats, or I mean, what what would you? Because it's not a it's not one that I would have guessed. As... No, it's not. It's not, and uh, because the, the readership of the magazine of the online magazine is obviously very much Australian, and we deliberately keep the content um, Australian because uh, that's who we want to appeal to. We don't want to just say that we have X number of readers um, and not have them relevant to, uh, you know. Yeah. The people that are that we drink every day, um, but you know, look, I've got no idea. Um, maybe they've got just got a podcasting culture. Maybe they like beer, or maybe you know, they. <laughs> this is what passes for comedy in uh, South America. <laughs> can just I can picture them. They're all just sitting sitting around the Aristone three in one in the in the dining <laughs> in the drawing room. The, the, you know, the Victrola. Gather round, gather round. Your radio Bruce News is on. <laughs> Apologies for the Mexicans uh, <laughs> who might listen. Now, Prof, since we uh, since we last spoke, we've actually got to sit down face to face, you know, uh, and and have beer. a beer together and sup. We did, we did. We had uh, it seemed like a long time with like three meals in two days. Um, oh, sorry, I had to leave early and, and, and not join you for breakfast. But um... <laughs> how, how do you like your eggs in the morning? <laughs> yeah. Moving on now. No, it was good. Can we tell the listeners we um, we we caught up along with some good friends of the program in uh, the Wobbly Tong, Alistair Robbie and Kiralee Walton, Willie Simpson. I don't know. If, I don't. I don't know if Willie listens. Um, well, I, I do want to get Willie on. We do want to get Willie on, and he uh, he he gave a Willie uh, a gruff Will- Willie uh, if I've got time. So uh, hopefully, we'll be getting on. on. Willie, Willie. <laughs> 
Willie Brazilian down. I'm, I'm just trying to. No, there's no. I can't see a funny line <laughs> just in that. Work out how right, many. Uh, no, move on. Yeah, I think we're going to have to take that um, clean uh, rating off the. Um, yeah. Yeah. iTunes this episode. Uh, but yeah, no, we caught up with the uh, with the guys at Matilda Bay, who are soon going to have a brewery that uh, people can go and visit themselves. And a fine establishment, Tiz, um, in Port Melbourne. I think it exists now, so I think we are officially allowed to talk about it. Well, we've been there. It certainly wasn't Area 51 or Area 52. Uh, it's not Black Ops. No. No, that's right. Uh it's a work in progress. It is very much under construction. The brew house uh, and the, the brewery packaging line, pasteurization, all that sort of the technique, you know, the, 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 the nuts and bolts is all up and running and the guys have been brewing there for two months um, and to quite large volume. I don't know that they expected to be working at capacity quite so quickly, but such is the popularity of some of their, their brands. Uh, and that's great. Uh, yeah. And the, that the public area is still under construction. So there'll be a like a semicircular bar. Um, there is There are plans for uh, some other areas that, you know, say small functions and, and that sort of thing, as, as well as some other out, outdoor areas. And you can kind of picture where it's going to be and it'll look terrific. It will be. And yeah, it was, it was good to see. Um, but particularly, it's one of the things that Matilda Bay really hasn't had since they moved from WA. Um, they're still listed in some corporate documents, I think, as being a WA business. Um, but they've been brewing in Dandenong for a while, and it's just been you know, people just haven't been able to interact with the brand. Um, yeah, and yeah. you know, I, I know that Fat Yak is one of our guilty pleasures, as, as, as we've said before. It doesn't get much uh, beer geek cred, but it, it's you know, I, I still think back, uh, you know, ten years, you know, um, B L C um, in in beer chronology, which is before Little Creatures. Um, you know, if if you could get Coopers on tap, or if you could get Coopers in the bottle anywhere, you would have rejoiced. Um, and so to have a beer like uh, you know Fat Yak available everywhere, mm. um, or you know, seemingly everywhere. Um, now we'll get lots of. Cards and letters, I'm sure, about the the whole contract and the big brewery thing. But you know, be that as it may, it's still great to be able to have. You know, if that's the worst beer on the list, um, things aren't too bad. And uh, actually, that brings us into Matilda Bay's new beer, um, which they revealed while we were down there, Itchy Green Pants or IGP, which is a little bit of a. It sounds like it was a little bit of a piss take on the whole IPA thing. Um, yes. Needless to state, it's an Australian pale ale. Um, but uh, no, you know, no doubt we. I, I tweeted a few comments about that, and you, know, you get the usual, uh, you know, great, just what we need, another Australian pale ale. But you know, in a in a world of ten thousand identical lagers, having the you know sixteenth um, you know, similar pale ale probably isn't a bad thing. No, that's right. And look, it was having said that, it has its points of difference, and it has its similarities. But at the end of the day. <sighs> Go go with what you know as, mm. as as far as this is you know this is what people are wanting at the moment um, and look without sort of well certainly not without giving anything specific away but with the um, the upcoming critic uh, release of the the critics choice uh, we've included a section on a a beer style and pale ale was the one to go for because it's just it's it's here it's now it's you know um, I don't know it's the flavour of the month <laughs> boom boom yeah. But yeah, no, look, it, and it is, you know, 
most be, most um, restaurants you go to have 15 lagers um, as if they're offering you a selection. Yeah. Even if there's just one or two pale ales, you know, that's anything that moves the flavor needle back to the right because it's, you know, plummeting so quickly to the left with uh, some of the beers that are, are coming out these days you know, in the, the mold of the Corona. Um, anything that sort of moves it back into the positive territory can only be a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, we, we say the beer is a lot of things. You know, beer is a conversation. Beer is a broad church. Um, one thing that beer isn't is a philosophy. You know, beer is a something you drink for pleasure. Um, you know, you can bring your, your, your life philosophy to it, but it, it always wears a little bit thin when people talk about, you know, this purity of business and things like that when uh, they, they drive a foreign car and you know, none of their other purchasing decisions because they're not passionate about everything else in their life. Um, they're, they're happy to buy it the cheapest and whatever, but with beer, you know, once you become a you know, a, a beer nut, um, it's very easy to think that you know that lives in a subset of its own that you apply different purchasing decisions to that that you don't necessarily everywhere else. But uh, exactly, you know, and just on that just on that point because it's a very nice segue. But a good friend of the program, loyal listener, and uh, one who gives me very regular uh, constructive feedback, Steve Jeffers from the uh, the local tap house. Uh, mentioned that he'd love to see a new segment on our show called Matt's Soapbox. Now, did you did you just put one foot up on the soapbox just then? Oh, just... Matt, I, I, I was just about to say, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that last soapbox uh, <laughs> was was going is, is going to generate a little bit of a conversation. Um, not not intentionally, but you know, my beer. <laughs> we, we we promise people that they'll know what we think. Um, you know that there is enough. You know. Oh, look, we're not going to hide behind euphemisms or, you know, puns or poor gags or, uh, you know, thinly veiled criticisms. If you, yeah, if, you, if you don't know by now the way that Matt and I think about particular issues. And to be fair, I think on a lot of issues where sort of we're, we're, we're either side of the centre line, perhaps, or whatever, and others we agree, but that's, that's always going to be the way. It's not set up to be, you know, um, tell everyone what Pete and Matt think. But you can't, you can't say that we're disingenuous oh no but but i think that yeah yeah i mean exactly and you know i I never hold myself out as being right as such um even if that's the way i sound because to me these sorts of things putting beer is a conversation up on the man on the uh, masthead isn't just some catchy line for me that's what it is and these discussions that we have are socratic things and it's what you learn from what comes back from what you know, when you say something, the responses that you get are always gradually shaping, and you know, your, your points of view and refining uh, what you think. And I guess, you know, hopefully we're, um, yeah, at least moderately informed because we don't just say these things to ourselves. You know, when we, when we sit down with people from breweries, big and small, we have these conversations and uh, you know, try and inform ourselves of the situation. But anyway, that I, I, I yeah, don't want to be giving it. It's sorry, but it's just occurred to me that in the same in, in the space of two minutes on the same podcast, we've managed to to squeeze in Brazilians and Socrates. <laughs> don't don't say you don't get value for money, considering it's free <laughs> when you listen to Radio Brews News. All right, how, who how, who else could go from you know making thinly veiled, pardon the pun, but thinly veiled uh, references to you know deforestating your lady garden? To the, the grandfather of modern thought. I mean, <laughs> it, it is all all happening. while talking about beer in a uh, uplifting manner. That's right, and you don't have to wait, um, you know, four months or three months until it's, uh, you know, uh, not relevant anymore to to read about it. 
Exactly. Now, speaking of generating a, a, a response uh, for, for a change, it wasn't one of uh, my columns that really sparked the debate on, on Brews News, but Aaron Caruana um, on Twitter, at here for the hops, follow him. He's a great guy from South Australia. He uh, did a quick whirl through Brisbane a couple of weeks ago and was amazed. Uh, he, he's, he travels a lot for work. He yep. always uh, visits every beer place he can. So he's pretty well versed. He's pretty well immersed in Australian beer culture. And he's a pretty good guy to read the you know, temperature of a, of a city um, in beer terms. And he came through Brisbane and uh, yeah, had a pretty... He, he dove in quite deeply. He checked out half a dozen of the new beer bars in one of the old ones and uh, you know, gave some fairly you know, moderate feedback um, about the city. He said it's great to see these places open. But one beer uh, venue in particular seemed to take a little bit of umbrage um, at... Well, I mean, God... In, in, in an article about Australia, in Brisbane's best beer bars, um, it was described as, you know, a great place to have some very good beer. But unfortunately, Aaron happened to use the word safe uh, in regards to their tap list. And, well, uh, well, not even. He, he used the word safer. Safer. Than, than, than when he had, it appeared to have a safer list than the time he had been there previously. And, and Aaron is a very uh, measured sort of guy. Like, he he won't say something for the sake of saying something, he kind of looks into it and he, he uh, yeah, he, he thinks about things before he before he says it and opens up. So it was certainly not an unfair um, or a, a critical review. No, no. But look, I just keep coming back to the, A, discussion is great, debate is great, the fact that it elicited a response is fantastic. But the most exciting thing for me is that 12 months ago in Brisbane, you couldn't have you know, a, a review of the, the beer destinations would have been pretty short. So the fact that we can now have a debate about the relative merits of a, you know, a, a dozen great beer venues um, or emerging beer venues is just a really positive thing. And it says a lot about the way beer is uh, getting out there. Very much so. Now, speaking of getting out there and just to lower the tone um, a little bit more, Prof, uh, before Christmas, in one of the episodes that ended up on the cutting room floor, um we we talked about a recent achievement that you had, uh, where you were officially crowned a tongue master. Tongue tongue master, that is, Matt. So in I, the show I, notes, can you just check I, the spelling when you do the show notes? That I read it online and it was spelt tongue master. Well, that's no, don't read again. That's that that was Steve Jeffers. That wouldn't be Steve Jeffers, who he was speaking very tongue in cheek. What <laughs> so what what happened was I was talked into by my uh, brother-in-law talked into entering a, a, a barbecue competition. So uh, held over five states and in five capitals, and they wanted to find out Australia's five best barbecue cooks. So you weren't allowed to be a professional chef, anything like that. that. That was about the only sort of, you know, proviso. Come and cook us something on the barbecue. We, we, we get some judges together and one from each state who sort of crowned the, uh, the state winner of the... Uh, the Tong Master. It was sponsored by Meat and Livestock Australia, so a shout out to them. Um, so I turned up uh, in the managed to get into the finals based on my recipe, which uh, I put my own twist on, I guess, being a beer bloke. Um, so I did a, a char grill barbecue porterhouse steak with Cascade Stout ice cream on top. Um, got me into the final, and cut a long story short, won the final. So I'm off to. Lexington, North Carolina, at the end of to April to represent Australia. To represent Australia with uh, with along with four others, so Team Australia, 
um, at the uh, Kansas City Barbecue Society. Yes, there is such a thing and it does exist. Uh, Capital City Cook-Off in Lexington, North Carolina. So we're all uh, now studying up and we're learning how to, if anyone knows how to use a Texas smoker um, and how to cook brisket and make it edible, give us a call, need help. Otherwise, otherwise just gonna be a good trip to the States. And I, I haven't found a lot of craft beer, craft beer um, outlets or breweries in North Carolina as yet. So if you know of any of those as well, give us a yell. I'm pretty sure that... But that's enough about me. All of our beer magazine is based in uh, Raleigh, uh, Raleigh, Raleigh. Uh, North Carolina. Raleigh. North Carolina, yeah. So that's... I might uh, put you in touch with him and no doubt they will be able to, uh, you know, point you to a few oases. But um, yeah. now, today's yeah. episode, now we've, we've been sort of keeping ourselves amused and hopefully you know, at least one or two of the many listeners that we've got talking about ourselves, but... We actually have a special guest on, uh, making a repeat performance on Radio Brews News today. A very special guest, in fact. Uh, Professor Charlie Bamford from the from UC Davis in the United States uh, joined us a few months ago now to talk about uh, his books, um, Beer versus Wine or Grape versus Grain, and Beer is Proof God Loves Us. And uh, we had a really Pete and I loved talking to him, um, but we had a really good response as well. It's always good when those two things go hand in hand. So we wanted yeah. to have a bit of a chat to Charlie today, um, just about the science and art of brewing. Um, Charlie speaks about the middle way. He uh, he doesn't have a foot in either camp, either craft brewing or you know, the big brewing world. He just looks at it at beer. And I was really struck with his phrase, the middle way. So we thought we'd have a look at that and strip some of the myths out of both big brewing and small um, in, a, in a highly technical sense that Charlie explains so well. Well, he's over in California as we speak, so let's not keep him waiting. Let's get him on. And yes, we're, wel we're welcoming again Professor Charlie Bamforth from the University uh, of uh, California, Davis, um, home of the brewing uh, faculty over there. And uh, Charlie, been a visitor on the show before with a very uh, positive response, we thought we'd get him back. Charlie, welcome back to Radio Brews News. Very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Charlie, as we said uh, when we wanted to get you back, last time we talked about your middle way um, and, and the books that you've written, um, really looking at the heart and soul of beer. Um, I wanted to look a little bit more at the science of beer. Uh, most of our listeners will be very aware with the four ingredients of beer, the malt, water, hops and yeast, um, and you know this, this romanticised view of brewing. But of course, brewery, modern breweries are very much um, laboratories or you know, take a very real focus on science. And that's where a lot of your research has been uh, geared over your career, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has, you know. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, some people say to me, oh, you keep talking about consistency and, and, and uh, they like surprises. But, you know, um, you know, there's no excuse, in my opinion, for not having consistently excellent beer. And, and that's where the science comes in. Uh, to make sure that every drop of uh, of the stuff is 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 excellent, um, uh, depending on what the specification is for a given beer, and and we meet those specifications. So a lot of the work I've done over the years, and other people have done as well, is is to uh, to ensure that uh, that consistency and consistent good. Do you, do you differentiate between consistent excellence and consistency? For example, can a beer be consistently ex excellent but still, you know, give full range to some of the seasonality of the the ingredients well yeah it can and, and it's it, it it's that is more likely to be the case perhaps 
and the and beers that are brewed in in smaller volumes. In that, um, you know, the, the the major brewing companies have got tremendous control, uh, and some people vilify them for that, but that, that really isn't fair. They've got tremendous control, and they they put a lot of effort in raw material selection. They put a lot of effort into adjusting and tweaking the process, so that every drop. Uh, comes out uh, identical uh, and and excellent, and uh, and some of those beers are very gently flavoured, and and some of them are are not. Um, perhaps on a smaller scale, perhaps on the on on the craft scale, there perhaps is a greater tolerance of saying, well, you know, we we've got to have certain tolerable ranges. You know, you can't have absolute rubbish one day and and nectar the next. It, it's always got to be pretty good. But perhaps there is a greater uh, acceptance uh, of saying, well, okay, um, this is really superb batch, and, and this one is pretty damn good, but not quite so superb as yesterday's and so on. Um, you know, I, ideally, every drop would be, you know, liquid gold. Um, but, you know, perhaps uh, uh, there is a greater acceptance of, of some of the more seasonal variations perhaps uh, uh, on, on some of the smaller scales uh, rather like the the wine guys uh, deal with their uh, and accept their their variations but we don't we don't pass but we don't place a fancy price tag on it uh, if it's really particularly good no and you don't need to wear a cravat to drink it either no i don't know <laughs> i know some good stories about cravats but i don't need to bother you with them on our, our intro had plumbed some very low depths uh, charlie so you, you would have been right at home <laughs> now, a, cr although, a cravat would although, actually have raised the level. Yeah, you know, although I'm a pom, I've never worn a cravat in my life. So, uh, <laughs> now, Charlie, one of the things you mentioned is that the big brewers uh, bring make incredibly consistent beer, um, and yet they have the, the same. I, I guess they have the ability to get first dibs on a lot of the ingredients. They get to purchase it, and uh, they have contracts. But even so, um, as grain moves out. Throughout the season, it will come in at different specs. How, how, what are some of the, the, the ways that the big brewers use to, to manage the, that ingredient um, variation and still come out with a very similar beer? Well, you know, the, 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 the variations are, are going to be tolerable because they will place specifications on the raw materials. So, you know, the barley going into the malt house has got certain specifications on it. And... Um, you know, if it doesn't meet those specifications, and those are set on the basis of saying, well, you know, if we set at this value, we're going to achieve consistency. Um, if it doesn't meet those specifications, chances are it's going to be rejected. It's only if if something is just not available, just not available, um, for whatever reason, you know, perhaps one season the protein is, is running a little bit high or the nitrogen's running a little bit high. Um, and perhaps the, then there is no choice but, but to go ahead and use that material. And then they will tweak the process elsewhere, you know. So, you know, if the protein is a little bit on the high side and you need to, to deal with it and get rid of that extra protein, perhaps because it might cause you a haze, then it might change the way in which you carry out your mashing or it may uh, influence the length of the kettle boil, or you may um, use a, a treatment downstream to remove um, more of the haze uh, problematic protein and so on. So the state of brewing knowledge is such that we really understand what the implication is right the way through if, if something is, is a little bit different. And so we can deal with higher levels of protein 
or uh, we, we can deal with these variations by adjusting the process. And that is the, the real, where we've reached in the world of, of brewing science after so many studies and so much work, we are able to uh, understand how to respond to, to a variation. And as I say, in the, you know, in the world of wine, um, you know, the grape year on year will, will be somewhat different and they, they just accept that. Whereas we wouldn't do that. We would try to, to tweak the process uh, and, and deal with it. Charlie, you touched on something interesting there. I visited, I was lucky enough to visit uh, Cascade uh, Brewing Company down in Tasmania uh, yeah. and went on a tour, spent a day with Max Burslam, the head brewer, oh, yeah. and, Great guy. and Great Roger guy. Ibbett. Yeah. yeah, and Roger Ibbett, the, the maltings manager. And we went out and saw how we actually, you know, we, we, we went out in these, in, in the golden fields of barley and, and, and Roger showed us how he, you know, determines the quality and that sort of thing. But it's, so you, you kind of touch this, there are two stages, aren't they? When you, when you talk about, for example, ingredients not being up to spec. So yeah. he would uh, test that it had to be a certain percentage was allowed to fall through the sieve. So yeah. to make sure it was the, it was the right size, for example. But it then obviously then goes perhaps under the microscope or something to, to detect the protein levels or the uh, nitrogen or, or whatever else, and then because so there's two two sort of parts to saying up you know that the ingredients need to be up to spec. Well, there's lots of lots of parts. You know, on, on a barley to go into a malt house, uh, the the maltster will place a, a number of specifications, um, and the first thing is um, uh, he or she wants to make sure that the grain has got the, uh, the right amount of protein. Um, usually for malting barley, it's, it's relatively low protein because, you know, the lower the protein, the more starch and the more starch at the end of the day, the more, the more beer you're going to get. Um, yep. yeah. So, uh, so the protein is one very important specification, but it all, protein also is a specification for, for other reasons, you know, that, uh, you know, it does, it will lead to haze in the beer. And uh, if you have too much, then you, people would worry for uh, season to season about having a, an increased risk of instability and so on. Uh, another thing that's going to be specified on the grain is, is its moisture content, how much water is there. Because the bottom line is, I mean, the maltster doesn't want to buy water. He wants to buy grain. He wants to buy um, uh, starch, basically. Um, the viability, whether it's alive or dead, you know, if it's dead, there's no damn use to anybody. So it, it, they've got to uh, have a specification for whether it's alive or not. Uh, also very important, they, they, they have a specification for uh, whether it's uh, contaminated or not and, and making sure that there's nothing uh, that is going to cause a problem that might be uh, living on the, on the grain, some sort of uh, mold or something like fusarium. You really don't want that because it's a food safety thing and also... Um, the protein from the fusarium can cause the beer to sort of gush out of the bottle, you know, and spontaneous foaming when you open it. So, you know, that's just a selection of the, of the specifications. And there's no way, absolutely no way, that a maltster, for example, would accept any contaminated grain. Um, uh, the, the one where there's possibly a little bit of negotiation is, is, is on the protein. And if it's just a little bit high, then perhaps the, the, the maltster will pay a little bit less for it uh, and, uh, and will tweak the process. You know, you, you, it might influence the, the malt house conditions and, and uh, how you process that barley uh, to really uh, get, uh, get a malt, which is going to be within specification. Because the finished malt is going to, there's going to be specifications on that that the brewer is demanding. 
Um, and so it goes on all the way down the line. You know, the the the, the person supplying the barley's got to satisfy the maltster, but then the maltster's got to produce malt that will satisfy the brewer, and, and so it goes down down the line. And of course, uh, people kick the person before them. You know, historically, brewers have always blamed the maltster. You know, <laughs> and, and 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 maltsters, I guess, have always blamed the farmer, and, and farmers always blame God. So you know, the the, the blame goes down the line. So sometimes God doesn't want us to be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like that. So Charlie, in 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 a nutshell, where does the science uh, of altering the specifications come in? So does the the maltster present the twenty five kilo bags of malt to the brewer, saying these are a little high in this or a little low in that, or does he have to guarantee this is ready and you can just put it in and start brewing, or does the brewer then have to sort of do a a pilot brew or a to check and then adjust at his end. Now, the way the way it works for most brewers is this: that you know the malt uh, will be bought by the brewer on the basis of a specification. So the brewer will right. specify uh, exactly what he or she expects, and there will be certain values for things like uh, hot water extract, protein, um, and so on, all the way down the line, um, moisture. Uh, and one or two other things as well. And uh, it's up to the maltster to meet those specifications. And so the, you know, the, the, the malt will arrive with the brewer with, a, with a, a, an analysis sheet. And that analysis sheet, the brewer can look at it and say, well, is this batch of malt meeting the specification? You know, time was when, when brewers had, you know, big laboratories and lots of people running around doing analysis that they would check those batches of malt. These days, it's, it, if they're going to check them, it'll be a spot check occasionally, or, and or they'll go to the malt house and they'll audit it. So they'll, they'll send somebody and they'll look at the malt house. Is it clean? Is it hygienic? Uh, and they might send samples for independent analysis and so on. So the onus, the analytical onus, is put on the maltster uh, to, to supply uh, grain that is within specification. And then, of course, if the brewer uses it and find it doesn't perform well, uh, then they'll start asking some questions. And so it is the same way with the maltster who is placing the specifications on, on the grain. Um, when the, at the start of the season, when the barley starts arriving in the malt house, what they're doing before they'll offload the grain, uh, they're doing very rapid checks um, to, to screen for protein, moisture, and viability. And of course, they're also casting their eyes and, and nose over it, making sure it looks good and smells good and so on. So they've got very uh, rapid spectrophotometric, spectroscopic methods for checking protein and moisture while a truck is waiting. Um, and uh, if everything's okay, then they'll uh, offload it. So all the way down, the, the, the brewing process is governed by specifications. There's a specification on the barley. There's a specification on the malt. There'll be specifications on the hops. Um, the the wort um, will have a specification on it. Is it okay for fermentation? And of course, the beer's got a specification on it as well. So you know, brewers rely on these uh, these values, and what they're looking to, to do to achieve control is to make sure that each of those parameters is within the tolerable range, and that's how we achieve consistency. Now, how about in the brew house, Charlie? There's a lot of science goes on there, but particularly around the little wild uh, fungus that makes all of the magic happen in beer. Yeast, not a domesticated animal. It's, it's always wild, isn't it? Um, well, 
that's a very interesting thing, actually. Um, there are two types of yeast, as, as, as you probably know, uh, ale yeast and lager yeast. Um, ale yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and, and those have been isolated um, all over uh, the world at various times. Uh, they sort of live um, wild on, on fruit and things like that. They don't actually live on, on grain. They do live on, on fruit, and, and one of the arguments for how brewing started thousands and thousands of years ago is they, they would put some fruit into the brew, some dates or something, and that would be a source of the yeast. Um, and, of course, uh, then there's lager yeast. Now, there's a, lot, there's a lot fewer lager yeast. There aren't so many lager yeasts, and some people argue that you, know, you can't easily isolate these from nature. Uh, you know, you can't sort of go all over the world and, and just, uh, you know, sift through fruit and so on and find lager yeast. It's a much more complicated yeast, actually. It's got, it's got actually about 50% more DNA. So it's got a lot more genes in it. Um, and uh, it's, it's changed its name over the years. Uh, it's, it's been through things like Saccharomyces carlsbergensis. The, the Danes uh, put their own name on it, of course. But these days, lager yeast is, is generally referred to as Saccharomyces pastorianus. And, of course, it's bottom fermenting yeast. What I tell my students, if you want to remember which is bottom fermenting yeast, take the last four letters of pastorianus, A-N-U-S, and you know it's bottom fermenting yeast. There we yeast, go, but, back, back to um, the depths that we like to plant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> down the earth, the earthy northern Europe. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Um, so this, it, you know, the, the, the molecular biologists and all these fancy gene folks, they um, have analyzed it, and they reckon that ale yeast, uh, um, eons ago, merged and melded with another yeast called Bayanus, and they got together and made this, uh, made lager yeast. So there, it's basically two yeasts in one. Um, and it's, as I say, Saccharomyces pastorianus. And you can't really easily isolate it from nature. Now, quite how it originally arose and, and quite where and so on is subject of debate. Um, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting organism, and it certainly behaves differently uh, to ale yeast. Um, given its druthers, you know, depending on the fermenter, it, it tends to, to, to sink to uh, uh, the bottom of the fermenter, whereas ale yeast, if it's in an open fermenter, will tend to rise to the top. And, of course, uh, ale yeast is more uh, heat-tolerant than lager yeast. So lager yeast uh, tends to work better at, uh, at colder temperatures and, and, and hence associated with the, the lagering process downstream, which is the, the cold storage. Well, that's uh, interesting. One of the first facts you learn, or certainly one of the first facts that I learned once I started entering the world of beer, was that lager comes from the German word to store and that you know, yeah. without knowing what they were doing by refrigerating their kegs over the warm summer months, uh, German beer makers were inadvertently selecting out lager yeasts. Um, and so lagers yeah. were the beers for storage. Is that a, a reasonable summary of? Yeah. I mean, the origin of, of lager, the real reason it started off was that uh, uh, the German brewers were, were forbidden to brew in the summer months. Um they they didn't understand exactly what was happening, but uh, they knew that um, in, if they brewed in the summer months, and in those days they didn't really understand about uh, hygiene and avoiding contamination and so on. And of course, in the warmer summer months, uh, things were spoiling uh, much more readily. So what they made them do was to brew only in the the winter months, and then they would they would store the beer in in, in caves in the cold and so on. Um, 
so that it would it would survive basically and of course as they stored it it uh, it you know things happened and uh, slowly carbonation built up and the stuff got uh, clarified because the stuff was chilled out and settled out and so on so a whole new beer style was developed so okay now the perception is that lagers do take longer to brew, but these days one of the things that our brewers have managed to do is make that crisp lager uh, style and, and make it much quicker. Um, is, it, is there an art to that or is there a science to it or is it better use man, uh, yeast management or are there some tricks that they use in the brew house to, to get the high, performing, the high performance from the yeast? Um, well, I think it, it again is a reflection of the fact that we understand what is happening. Um, one of the, you know, if you ferment, of course, in the fermentation cellar, what you're doing is, of course, as everybody knows, you're converting sugars into, into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Uh, but there are some other flavor things going on as well. And, and the slow stage of, uh, of fermentation and maturation, it's, it's actually not making the alcohol, but it's getting rid of uh, something we call VDKs. Now, the VDKs stands for something called vicinal diketone, but, but the, the, there are two of these, and I'm, I'm going to give you the American pronunciation because I, well, diacetyl, I don't know how you, in England it would be diacetyl, I'm not sure what it would be in Australia, but in, in the United States it's diacetyl, but uh, there's that and something else called pentane dione, and they smell of uh, butterscotch, popcorn, honey, these sorts of, of sweet, sickly sorts of flavors and, and certainly lager style beers most lager style beers i would stress uh, don't benefit from having that particular uh, character so one of the things that happens if you store uh, beer uh, is that uh, and this will have happened in the original lagering process is that progressively uh, this diacetyl and pentane dion these vdks would be uh, taken away and it's the yeast that actually takes them away the yeast is responsible for their production because they're made from an offshoot of, of yeast metabolism but the good news is that the yeast will scavenge them again and take them up again so the rate limiting step in fermentation maturation is the time taken to get rid of these uh, popcorn butterscotch honey like flavors now one way is to prolong storage and lagering and so on but we understand now how these things arise and, and what, uh, what we can do to, to get rid of them. And there are various tricks. I mean, the first and important thing is uh, you need healthy yeast. And if you've got good, vigorous, virile yeast, uh, then, you know, at the end of fermentation, it's still pretty healthy and it'll start to scavenge these, uh, these VDKs. One other thing you can do, and we used to do this in, in the company I was uh, uh, research manager for in England, um, we used to allow the temperature in the middle of the fermentation to rise about one or two degrees Celsius centigrade, and that speeded up the rate at which the yeast would mop up these uh, VDKs. Um, so, and there are one or two other tricks as well. There's actually a commercial enzyme that you can use, and uh, some people do to, to speed it all up. And even in, uh, in Finland, they have a, a remarkable, in one of the companies, a very uh, interesting um, heating process. And then they flow the beer through a, a column of yeast, an immobile column of yeast. So there's a whole range of different tricks you can use to speed up this uh, mopping up of these VDKs. So 
I used to be with I used to be uh, with Bass, and our philosophy with in Bass was with with our lager, Carling Black Label. I think I'm allowed to say this. Um, if not, they'll have to shoot me. No one listens to us, Charlie. Um, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Our, our philosophy was, you know, in fermentation, we make sure we have good yeast, good healthy yeast. Then, as I say, we'd allow the temperature to rise at the midpoint in fermentation, and then we'd leave the yeast and the beer after the end of uh, when the alcohol had been produced. Leave it together just a day or so longer um, for the final VDK to be mopped up, and then we just. You know, got rid of the yeast, we centrifuged off the yeast and we chilled the stuff right the way down to minus one Celsius for, for three days and, and then got it into a package and sold it to the consumer. Because as far as we were concerned, beer was more useful when it was sold than, than when it was being brewed. Now, other people, of course, they they believe and all they tell all these stories about long storage and, and so on. And, and certainly it is the case that the the gentler the flavor of the beer, uh, the lower that level of these VDKs needs to be, because you'll you'll detect them much more readily in a very gently flavored lager than you will in a more robustly flavored uh, lager. There's another trick that uh, traditional German technique that some people use, and this is called uh, croisoning. And what you do with croisoning is um, uh, down straight down at, towards the end of the fermentation, you add uh, say 10% of a, a freshly fermenting wort with a lot, a lot of yeast in it. And that will uh, help to speed up the removal of uh, these, uh, this diacetyl and, uh, and pentane diol. So the bottom line and the answer to your question is, you know, there are tools and tricks uh, to actually uh, speed up that lagering process and mean that it can really be very quick indeed. It, it depends what stories you want to tell, what, what marketing angle you want to uh, uh, to spit out, you know, I, I can remember a, a well-known European lager. They used to advertise it in, in the UK with you know showing all these sort of cellars with en endless tanks full of beer being stored for weeks on end, and and they were making a, you know, they were celebrating that. Whereas it, it all seemed a little bit bizarre to me in in the 21st century. You know? Okay, but it, it's funny that you mention that because uh, there's a one of our major brewers down here is running a campaign for their premium. Uh, lager um, in which time is the fifth ingredient and uh, talking about the extra time that they uh, lager their beer for um, the, the fact that yeah. the beer actually has five physical ingredients um, I think that is a little bit deceptive because that would make time the sixth ingredient but we won't <laughs> we, we, we won't jump on that particular <laughs> soapbox don't, don't go there it's, girlfriend yeah yeah it is it is that, I mean, that's interesting and, and um it, it, it's, it's marketing. It, it, I mean, it truly, truly is um, marketing, in my opinion. Uh, years ago, I, I, I used to uh, run a research program, and lots of companies from, from countries all over the world uh, bought into this research program from a research organization in the UK. And uh, any member, any of these companies, could veto what we were doing. And we used to suggest all these projects we could do and, and any one of them could be vetoed. And I remember suggesting a project. We do a project on what really happens if you have long maturation time. What really happens? Is there any real benefit? And, uh, and we would do that project for everybody's benefit. And one company vetoed it. Now, they vetoed it either because, you know, they, they thought, well, hell, they're going to find out that there's nothing in it. Or 
they really did know that it had a benefit and they didn't want anybody else to know about it. So I, I never did find out whether it was, which, which of those it was. But my personal belief is that, you know, I think leaving beer and yeast together for very, very long periods of time, uh, I think there's a net negative effect rather than a positive effect. Uh, and that negative effect is all to do with the bubbles. Um, because if you leave yeast uh, and beer together, that yeast will slowly leak things out of it uh, and they damage the foam. Um, and I'm passionate about bubbles, so uh, I don't think it's a good idea. So I think the good idea, to my mind, the, the idea of good fermentation management and good maturation management is look after the yeast, uh, make sure you put the right amount into it, have the right fermentation conditions and uh, let that virile yeast do its job as quickly as possible. Well, and essentially, being able to brew beer more quickly or quicker is not a, yeah. it's not cheating, is it? Because we, we no longer need to, you know, leave our beer in barrels in hollowed out ice caves in the, the Alps. No, we don't. We, and, it, and we, no. You know, I, I'll tell you another story against the, the English. I mean, the, everybody, and of course, let me, you know, just in case there's any doubt, I am English uh, by birth. So, um, so I am a POM. You'll forgive me for that. But, you know, the English didn't discover lager until about 1970. Um, you know, the rest of the world discovered it earlier. Uh, but the English discovered it. And the reason they, they leapt onto the bandwagon of lager uh, was they reckoned they could charge a higher price for it because they could tell stories about storing, you know. And, 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 you know, I, there's one beer in the UK, it, it was an ale, and because it was fairly light in colour, they, they just changed the label and called it a lager, that's the only <laughs> thing they did to it, you know, and put, a, put extra price on it. So I'm being a little bit cynical, but, but it, it is true to say that, you know, um, it's, it's, it's very clever, and, and there'll be some people in the brewing industry who will be pretty irritated with me for saying it. You're right at home here then, Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can do things that you can do them relatively quickly and still make an excellent and a very consistent product. But there'll always be people. There'll always be people who will say, "Nah, nah, it's not as good as it used to be." You know, even though you can do all sorts of trials and you do con controls and, and you do comparisons and you do an experiment, you speed something up and you find, "Hey, it's, it's just as good." Uh, there'll always be people who psychologically say, "Nah, it can't possibly be as good." Um, but the reality is, yeah, you can speed things. There's some things you can't do to speed things up and, and, and will be a risk to the quality. Um, but when it comes to things like controlling these uh, VDKs and so on, you can do that pretty quickly. Well, that brings in the semantic question then. And lager beers are called lager because they use a lager yeast, but they've also, people still associate that with the process of physically lagering. Is it yeah. the yeast that defines the beer or you know, is, it, is it fair to describe the brewing process as involving lagering with these you know, modern fermentation techniques? Well, no, I mean, as I say, you know, the biggest selling lager in the United Kingdom, we, we, um, and, and that, that is owned by the uh, Molson Coors these days, so I, no, I have no idea if, if that company who bought it from the old Bass Company, I have no idea if they've changed that process. I doubt if they have. But I mean, you know, literally, we we went from uh, fermentation to cold uh, minus one for, and and that minus one, the specification was for for just three days, um, and that's not very long at all. So whether you know, we never called it lagering, we called it cold conditioning, but it was very much a lager, and it is very much a lager. Um, 
So it really is a, a, a very, it's almost philosoph philosophy, what, what you describe as a lager. Um, one of my favorite little breweries in, in San Francisco, um, they, they had about six or seven different beers, and the, there were ales, and there were lagers, and they only had one yeast in the brewery. Yep. All right? So, you know, you, you tell me, when, when does an ale become a lager and vice versa, you know? Uh, and so the purist would say, well, an ale is an ale when it's made with an ale yeast and a lager when it's made with a lager yeast. And I guess that would be, at the end of the day, um, a, a, a reasonable way of differentiating the two. So a Hefeweizen is always an ale because the authentic Hefeweizen yeast is an ale yeast. So all the Hefeweizens are ales. So it's it's a useful descriptor description, but you know, I've seen lots of people making um, lager beers and ales uh, and, and just having in the same brewery with just one yeast strain. So um, that's sacrilege to hear. A lot of people would think that's a terrible thing uh, to to hear and to think about, but it happens. It happens, and. Um, uh, you know, until somebody in a court of law stands up and says, thou shalt can only use this yeast uh, to make that style of beer, uh, then these borders will continue to be blurred. You brought in before, uh, one of the things that brewers can use uh, to remove the VDKs is uh, a commercial enzyme, for example. Um, and yeah. those brewing aids uh, that, that brewers use a lot these days to control the, and refine the brewing process um, you know, that can be used to break down the, the starches into fermentable sugars, obviously used um, to, to remove the VDKs. Um, nutrients are used to uh, feed the yeast and make sure that it's vigorous, as, a, as you mentioned. There's that school of thought, particularly in the craft world, that you know, that's taking the art or the you know, purity from brewing. Um, and particularly when some of the some of the most successful commercial beers that are very light flavored, um, when, when you hear some of the very advanced refining processes that are used, to me it does start sounding a little bit like you know you, you're making something that's got the same characteristics as a as a craft cheese single plastic wrapped cheese slice. Is, is that a fair <laughs> analogy? Or? Um, well, let, let me let me uh, you know. I can think of some very, very uh, huge volume uh, international beers where, that are brewed very much um, with a clean labeling uh, mentality. You know, I can think of some, and I don't want to name names, but I can think of some, some very famous uh, beers globally. Uh, they might use um, some adjuncts, you know, they, may, they might use uh, uh, a corn or rice or something like that, um, but they would never put a, a commercial enzyme into it or they would they would never use a preservative um, so there is there's very much that sort of um, clean labeling uh, mentality throughout the brewing industry in the very large companies and the small ones um, certainly in this country in the United States um, so um, so there's that uh, approach as well and of course, I made the point only today in one of my classes, you know, I, I've always been a little bit um, curious as to why, um, you know, uh, if the starch is in the form of barley, it's okay. But if the starch is in the form of rice or corn, it, it's not okay. You know, for goodness sake, you know, r barley, rice and corn, they're, 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 bags of, they're bags of starch, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they're all cereals, you know. So, you know, it's a little bit 
pompous to say that somehow barley is better than corn or barley is better than rice. But having gotten that <laughs> off my chest, uh, you know, the, you know the, the, the mentality, and I, I, for one, get a little bit frustrated with it. The mentality here, um, and uh, this exists in other parts of the world, is that brewers, including the very big ones, would really prefer not to use um, enzymes, for example. Let me give you a specific example. Um, one of the big uh, problems that many brewers worry about is something called beta-glucan. Um, you know, so beta-glucan, beta-glucan, whatever you want to call it. And this, of course, is the sticky stuff that comes out of the barley, and it's in the cell walls in barley. And if you're not careful, it, it'll gum up the works. You know, it'll, it'll slow down um, the rate at which you can collect the, the wort. It'll slow down beer filtration and so on. So um, the way you deal with it is you have really, really good, well-modified malt, uh, consistently well-modified malt, and then you might, might start your mashing at a, a lower temperature to allow the enzymes that need to break down the beta-glucan uh, to, to do their job and so on. But one thing you can do is you can put in an enzyme, a, a very heat-resistant enzyme, into the mash and it'll chew it all up quickly and, and, and do a wonderful job and increase your rate at which you can collect the wort and it'll increase the amount of extract you get and, and um, it, it does a great job. And yet, despite, I mean, people worry about this beta-glucan, I say, well, put in some heat-stable beta-glucanase and they say, no, no, we can't possibly do that. And I say, why? Well, it, it's, a, it's a foreign enzyme. And I say, you know, it, it comes from organisms uh, that are already in small quantities able to grow on the grain you know uh, and there are organisms growing the grain that, that actually can make this enzyme so just because somebody makes it in a factory <laughs> and puts it in a bottle and calls it beta-glucanase you're not prepared to use it uh, whereas all it's doing is supplementing what you've already got and it's improving your process and then what the heck are you going to do you're going to take that wort and you're going to boil it you know, you're going to boil it and kill all this stuff anyway. So why not? And, and there's another example of it. Um, you know, in the malt house, um, the, the thing that causes the, uh, the stuff to germinate, the grain to germinate and to produce enzymes, is a hormone um, from the embryo of the, of the growing barley plant. And it's called uh, gibberellin. Now, you can actually buy something called gibberellic acid, which is virtually identical to it. Uh, that, that you can uh, produce in a fungus growing in a, in a fermenter. And uh, if you spray this gibberellic acid onto the barley, you can promote germination and you can make it more consistent and more even. But many maltsters won't do that um, and, and because brewers won't let them. <laughs> and frankly, it's, it's a little bit bizarre that, you know, science has allowed us to develop these ideas. And yet, um, there's this, there's this um, almost holier-than-thou uh, attitude uh, that, no, I can't possibly use anything other than, than the traditional way of doing it. So um, the, the fundamental process, the fundamental process by which all brewers, big ones and small ones, uh, make beer is, is pretty much the same. Uh, it's just that some brewers, and some are on a relatively small scale and some on a large scale, will um, use some of these tricks, uh, but a lot won't. Um, but those tricks are fairly, you know, they're fairly minor sort of, you know, they're not horrific. 
you know they're not you know you're not you're not mixing together chemicals to make beer uh it's still the same process it's just using science to allow you to to speed things up or make things more efficient uh, better yields and, and so on it- Sorry, that was a little bit. That was a bit pre. Oh, you, you, you're, you've got a good home here for that. Uh, we, that's another Charlie's soapbox is going to become a regular segment on this show. I think. <laughs> All right, but I, you know I, what I would say is I, I you, know, the, you know, brewing is full of opinions, and uh, and and that that's you know I'm not afraid of giving mine, but you know other people have got different opinions. That's fine, and I and I I simply think we should respect one another's opinions. You know, and too many people don't do that you know they you know they they you know they sort of say yeah you know that's that's a big brewing company uh, therefore by definition it's crap uh, and it's bad the bad people and you know and that's nonsense that's absolute nonsense and and in the big companies there's some attitude saying well you know these guys you know the mickey mouse operations on a small scale and that's bad as well you know so we ought to like i said i think when i, I was on here before we need to respect uh, all these different opinions and and uh well, the only point I'm making is, you know, people make decisions of using things like beta-glucanase and, and gibberellic acid for good reasons, for good economic reasons. And they still make pretty good beer, very good beer, uh, using those sorts of uh, tricks. I'll, I'll just hark back to a point you made before about um, perception and how much that leads to flavors. I personally, I, I don't like reviewing beers because at the end of the day, I can never work out whether the beer is tasting different to my previous experience with it or whether I'm tasting it different because of my, yeah. my mood and all of those things. But and, and I always very much check my bias whenever I'm drinking a beer from a, a brewery who I have expectations of. But a, right. a good example, and I like to use cheese as a metaphor, um, I recently just grabbed a uh, cheese from a, from a deli um, for, for a taste, for a beer and cheese tasting and I tasted it. It was you know, very clean tasting. It was, you know, it, I think it was a uh, matured cheddar. Um, but it was still, it had just a, sort of a cleanness to the cheese that gave it a processed, like a, a highly controlled feel to it. And I had no idea who made it um, yeah. when, when I did it. But then right. because of that, I, it suddenly clued to me that you could pick it up in a lot of places. So it obviously wasn't a small art, artisanal uh Cheesemaker, and it turned out that it was Lion, who were one of Australia's biggest brewers. Um, so it makes the metaphor even better. And it, 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 it's <laughs> something I do find that um, artisanal products do always seem to have a, or sorry, not always because there are some dreadful ones, but um, good artisanal products often have a complexity to them um, that really adds to the experience of drinking it. Whereas some of the, whether it's cheese or beer that comes out of uh, breweries, that, that use these, um, you know, highly refined, consistent base techniques, seem to lose a little bit in that complexity. No matter how clean and no matter how good the flavors are, sometimes that cleanliness actually takes away from the beer. Is that? Um, I, I think I know what you're saying. I, 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 I think possibly it does speak to the the fact that you know, um, and it depends on the beer, of course. Um, that, that some beers they're, they're designed to to be as drinkable as possible by the greatest number of people. Let, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. So if you've got a if you've got a product which is should we say a little bit 
away from center that is has got us you know an interesting character that that you know chances are some people will love it and some people will hate it um and if you think of the beers that sell the most uh, they tend to be the, pretty middle of the road, you know. Um, some people would call it the lowest common denominator, and I don't necessarily think that's the best way of describing it. But you know, beers that they're not going to offend. They might not. They might not, you know, delight everybody from their, you know, uh, in the way I think you're describing. But they're not going to offend. They're going to be drinkable, easy to drink, and reach the largest number of people. So if you look at the best and the biggest selling beers uh, on this planet, you know, they're fairly gently flavored. They're not got extremes of flavor. So I'm not sure if we're on the same. No, no, I, I think you do. In, in fact, that actually, some, you know, that, that's a great way of explaining um, the point that I was making. But the, the, because you've put it so eloquently or so concisely, you've actually made it, 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 it sound you're, you're speaking about those beers in the same way that I can imagine a McDonald's executive talking about their product or the plastic wrapped cheese guys yeah, talking about their product. So does that then make the you know the, the processing used to, to these beers to appeal to that market in this and, and I'm, I'm not trying to trick you out here and make you say something you're not, but they are they are phrases that you you, you do hear across a, across a wide range of you know big, um, corporate products. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I actually love McDonald's fries. I have to oh, say. But anyway, so, so, um, and, and that, <laughs> that's the thing. They they're, they're popular for a reason, but it doesn't make them high expressions of the art. No, no, that's absolutely right. You know, and and uh, you know, I I know that if I go into McDonald's anywhere in the world, and I have to say I, I don't do it very often, but when I do it, it's simply because I know that I'm going to enjoy the fries, and and wherever I am in the world, they're going to taste exactly the same. Um, and, uh, you know, it may not be a fine dining experience, but, but, uh, it, it's, it's pleasurable, enjoyable, and it serves its purpose. Um, you know, I, the, the other thing I would say is that, and I think the same thing applies perhaps to, to some of the, um, the well-known brands of beer. Uh, but you know, those big brewing companies, uh, there's not a beer they can't make if they want to. You know, I mean, they're they're very skilled brewers. They're very very skilled brewers, and and um, a lot of people get irritated when I when I talk about consistency. They 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 really don't like it. They they they, they seem to think I'm saying that it, well, they must be the best beers because they are consistent. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's a it's a mark of quality. It's one perception of quality, and one way in which you can describe quality is consistent consistently achieving the specification um, and what uh, those brewers can do is if they said you know well hey we're going to make a you know any, you name the type of beer any type of beer you want chances are they will make that beer and make it amazingly consistently time in time out but um, you know th they, those are not the beers that they make their you know, the money on, um, because they've got very big fermenters, you know, and, 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 and big breweries all over the place. And the ones that they're going to most efficiently produce and which are going to make the biggest money are the ones that they, you know, the, the, the names that you're well familiar with. And, um, and so it, you know, to, to make, you know, small, a whole range of different types of beer, um, 
some of which may sell, some of which won't, um, but with very, very big fermenters, is you know it's it's counterintuitive. You you can't. Do you understand? I'm not sure I'm getting across, the point across. That it, no, no. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm listening in rapt attention rather than in bewilderment. Yeah, if you're if you're sort of saying, well, hey, we're going to make this beer, and we're going to make that beer, and we're going to make this amount of beer, and we'll see whether people like that one or not. If you're dealing with fermenters that all thousands and thousands of of, of, of liters of beer then that is not as efficient as saying, hey, we know that we can wind the handle churning out this product, which is going to appeal uh, or be a, um, uh, sellable and, and received by the greatest number of people. Those are the beers that they're going to produce, and those are going to be the bread and butter. And so, um, but if on, a, you know, in, on an experimental scale, um, they wanted to uh, make other brews, um, perhaps what some people would say are more interesting brews, then I would argue that those brewers are probably going to do the job uh, more consistently um, than, than anybody. And, of course, a lot of these um, big brewing companies uh, have got smaller operations um, that actually are really in the, if you like, in the craft sector. You know, think of some of the big brewing companies, certainly in the United States, for example, then they do have um, smaller concerns that they are heavily invested in that actually do make these, you know, the beers that, that are typical of the ones coming out of the craft sector. And they can make those beers amazingly consistently and amazingly well. So, and I think those beers will be the ones that, that, that meet the criteria you described of, of having that je ne sais quoi of, uh, of, of the, you know, the, the artisan uh, sort of dimension. Charlie, you've touched on a couple of points and we've, we've spoken a bit about uh, the, the scene in the USA, which obviously you're very familiar with. A couple of our uh, listeners have sent in some questions and both of them okay. happen to be, the, the first two I've got, happen to both be, uh, along similar lines in terms of the US being, if you like, the hotbed or the, you know, the, the spiritual home at the moment of, uh, of craft beer, whether the smaller artisanal, the different, uh, the out there extreme, all that, everything that's not um, the solid, consistent, mainstream, everyday yep. sort of product. Uh, Absolutely. So first of all, from the, the Yeasty Boys over in um, uh, New Zealand, so uh, fine craft brewers over there, are asking about is is there something that the USA can or is learning uh, from the the various scenes in the other countries? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, one of the things that uh, in the craft sector picks up on over here is they they sort of uh, take a uh, a theme from some other traditional brewing centre and then then run with it and in some instances you know run hard with it and take it to a new dimension so of course um you know most of the craft sector over here are making ales and most of them would 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 sort of suggest that they they're sort of building on the the english ale type of of idiom uh, but then they've gone way beyond uh, anything you get in england in terms of things like hops and so on so you know, an IPA in, in, in Britain is, is, is a relatively hoppy beer, but, you know, it, it, it's nowhere near what you get over here, you know. So we're into the double yeah. IPAs and the triple IPAs and the, you know. Imperial uh, IPAs. Uh, <laughs> imperial, I mean, things I've never even heard of in England are, are, are now uh, over here. Uh, and then, of course, then the, the whole, um, the, the lambic type uh, 
genre from from Belgium over here. They can't call them lambics. They call them what do they call them? They call them American spontaneous ales, or they call them uh, cool ship sours. Yeah, yeah th those anything you know, and and of course, uh, the those are um, uh, are big, you know. So, and and, and near here, just a. Uh, uh, 30, 40 miles from where I am here, we've got the Russian River Brewing Company. Great brewery. Mm. Guy called Vinny Chilezo, and he celebrates, you know, the Bretonomyces, you know, and the, the wet horse blanket and Tomcat pee. And, and <laughs> I went to see him and I said, Vinny, is this the, the beard is described as being like a wet dog urinating in a telephone box? And he said, Yeah, yeah, we love that. We love that, you know. So, so yeah, they, 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 uh, they take all, they do. Um, uh, look and, and get their ideas, I guess, from from across the world. But then they they stamp their own um, uh, seal on it and, and take it to a new dimension. It you know it it's it's a wonderful place uh, to be. Um, the the energy uh, with these guys, I just love it. You know, every year there's the craft brewers conference, and uh, you know, uh, you know, four figures, thousands of people. And they're so energetic and they're so passionate and they're so thirsty for knowledge. It's just absolute delight to, to be part of that. And, uh, and, uh, and along may it continue. And then the last question I'll throw in from Greg McGill, who coincidentally also from New Zealand, um, he asks about packing technology. Um, and the US obviously seems to be the, the center of craft beer in, in cans. Um, yeah. We haven't talked much about packaging, so just I guess in in a very brief sentence, uh, is it something we can learn to bring packaging like that over here? I, I, I'm not sure that the there's uh, the the packaging technology itself is is uh, necessarily uh, any different to what you have over there. But the, I mean, the the fundamental thing is is this whole business of of putting beer into cans as opposed to bottles. And this, the psychological thing that's going on here, you know, I can remember uh, I was in Australia once and I was in a Chinese restaurant uh, over in, uh, well, I can't remember. I think it was in Brisbane, but I, I, I really can't remember. But I do remember going mm. into a Chinese restaurant uh, and they brought me my, my beer in a can and I was blown away. I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is, you know, this is down market. You can't have a can in a restaurant. And even it would have I, been Brisbane then. Yeah. <laughs> even though, even I though, that, even though I, uh, I knew that actually the beer in a can would be better than it would have been in a bottle. And the simple reason that in a, in a bottle, uh, the air can creep in between uh, the neck of the bottle and the crown cork. Hmm. And, and, and lead to more rapid staling. And of course, the light can get in. You know, even in a brown glass bottle, with enough sunlight, you're gonna you're gonna get the skunking reaction taking place. It's a lot worse in a green or a clear glass, uh, but in a can, of course, no light gets in, no air gets in, and as long as the the inside of the can is properly coated, then you know no metal is going to leak into it. And everybody who says you know beer in a can isn't, doesn't taste as good, that's pure psychological, and it, it is, and there's a huge psychological dimension. Um, but, you know, um, one of my favorite breweries, uh, Sierra Nevada, just up the road here in Chico, uh, they are now installed a, a, a canning line. Uh, it took can Grossman a long time, but he's doing it now. And uh, that, you know, is the, the mark of the fight that you know, cans are okay. Um, 
and it, it's it's still I think if you do the psychological survey I think glass would still be psychologically the the premium choice but but cans are going to grow and get bigger and uh, in terms of volume and frankly um, it's it, it's better did I ever tell you my 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 story of uh, I, I, and the first time I ever came to Australia and ordered a Cooper sparkling ale and and they, they poured this Cooper sparkling ale out and I I took it back and I said, you know, there's something wrong with this. It's cloudy. Uh, and, and the guy said, it's supposed to look like that, you pommy bastard. Now drink it. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been Adelaide, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Tim Cooper, uh, the Coopers, what wonderful people. I mean, great. I really, I love going there. Mm. In their 150th year, they're celebrating the 150th anniversary yeah. this year, Charlie. Yeah. yeah, Tim's got the most. Have you ever heard him laugh? What an amazing laugh that guy's got. I, I came over once. I tell you, noticed I came. I was in. I was doing a tour of all the centres. I started off in Perth, and I got a, a a real bad ear infection. And so I went to the doctor, and he gave me this medicine. He said two things: he said you can't drink and you can't fly. I said tomorrow I'm going to Adelaide and I'm going to Cooper. So both of those, are, <laughs> both of those are out of the question. I want a second opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Charlie, um, you, you promised us now. We, we, we've taken that. As I said to you when we were setting up the interview, we could easily talk for a couple of hours. But uh, look, I, I, I'm fairly certain that you're going to be a regular guest on Radio Brews News. Uh, you, uh, you willing, uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I am. Um, but you, I always enjoy talking about beer. It's always good fun. And, and I'm not saying this to BS you, but I always like talking to Aussies, you know. We, we have this banter, you see, so that's, that's good. And I'm actually coming to the uh, Institute of Brewing and Distilling. Uh, the, the, uh, so, um, and the Asia-Pacific section I have a meeting every two years, so uh, I'll be down in Melbourne uh, towards the end of March. I'm just about to book my ticket on, on the strength of that. Um, we'd love to do a Radio Brews News Live with you if you had time. That'd be great. Love to do it. Perhaps oh, over a beer. That, that, yeah. that was my next question. Yeah, <laughs> Charlie, uh, the, the only other question I had to ask, I, have you got any more books in the works? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking, but I didn't I didn't prompt this, did I? Um, no, <laughs> not at all. I've, <laughs> I've, I've read the other two cover to cover, and uh, including yeah. listening to the audio book, and I wanted to uh, get oh, really? some more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ASBC, the American Society of Brewing Chemists, I'm doing a six, uh, uh, a series of six short books. The first one will appear soon. And each of these books is is basically a troubleshooting guide to uh, to, to beer quality, uh, a bit like a car manual. Um, and so the first one is on foam, um, and that I hope will be out in uh, in a few weeks' time, actually. So it's a, it's a series. If you go to the American Society Brewing Chemists website, soon, I'm not sure if it's up there yet, but it'll start being uh, marketed there pretty soon. Um, we'll link to that off the podcast. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, well, I'm not sure if it's there yet or not, but uh, we'll, you can link for it. And uh, I said to my kids, you know, I got th three kids, two of whom are married, and uh, I've got three grandchildren. I said, you know, each of these books is going to be dedicated to a grandchild. Well, I've only got three grandchildren, so they've got to get on with it. Uh, but uh, they, they tell me it's not, <laughs> not their problem, it's mine. So anyway, they... <laughs> Charlie Bamforth, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, we look forward to, well, we look forward to seeing you in Melbourne in March. All right. Love it. Love to see you. Okay. Cheers. Thanks again, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Well, as we said, that was Charlie Bamforth. And Prof, you know, I always feel very uncomfortable, despite willing to rant um, against things, I always feel very, very uncomfortable 
gushing too much about products because these days we live in a PR driven industry where everyone gushes and it just never sounds credible. Um, and I hope that the times I do say gushy things, it you know it, it comes across as being very sincere and uh, you know speaking to Charlie Bamforth just always leaves me wanting to gush. Uh, it's riveting stuff. <laughs> it is. It, 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 terrific and and uh, some interesting topics covered and even though they're fairly heavy cover, heavy topics I mean where, in what other podcast are you going to sort of get beta glucans was it uh, VKDs and river, <laughs> which, river, which sounds like some penicillin to a cleanup exactly and yet he he makes it sound so accessible approachable understandable uh, and hopefully it's given some of our listeners a, I guess look not a not an appreciation necessarily for the taste of the beer that they perhaps started on but have moved on from but at least a, an appreciation of of how it's made and how it's not just robots tipping consistent you know just tipping product straight off pallets or straight off the back of trucks into fermenters and whatever there is actually there's some adjustments that need to be made and in some cases more so than i guess the smaller brewers have the the luxury of, of being able to get away with because you can claim but it as a, a seasonal variance or an agricultural difference or a you know the hops were a little bit more punchy this you know this this release um the big brewers i guess have got to make it all taste the same because that's that's what they say they're going to do and and that's what they do and you know he's just so matter of fact there's no judgment in it he's it's, it's just an observation yep. and it's an yep. observation born of a love of beer and a lot and a lifetime of experience and uh, yeah, exactly. and that's what we like and the fact that he can allude to a uh, a nice bawdy cravat joke and then go straight into a long dissertation about the philosophy of beer making. You know, perfect fit for our Radio Brews news. Exactly. And in line with our Brazilians and our willies, he even managed to get on. <laughs> yes. so. And look, I'm, I'm beside myself at the thought of, uh, um, I can't now remember, did we do it on air or not? Uh, talking about him being down. Charlie's coming air. down. Charlie will be here and we're going to organise something. So there you go. Breaking news. And I am beside myself that we Radio are Radio Brews news. You heard it first. Jumping off the phone uh, with you, and I'm going to get in touch with uh, Steve Jeffers and say, Steve, hold the uh, hold the stage. We're doing a uh, audience with Charlie Bamford. Radio Brews News Live, exactly. Yeah. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, uh, except for the ones in Brazil, watch out for that. It's going mm -hmm. to be exciting. So, Prof, always a pleasure to catch up. Now, Prof, uh, what, what did you. you think of the uh, outro music last uh, last podcast? Well, look, I've got to the stage now where because you don't tell me what the music's going to be, I have to kind of get in character down this Man, end I, and, hope, I, I, and hope that I've, I've got a bit of a... So I must... Last last week, I kind of... I went for a bit of a... Like a lederhosen, uh, green felt hat kind of feel. And then you threw it... I should have had chaps and a cowboy hat. There well, were, see, I would have thought <laughs> that when you saw the band filing into the studio... guitars and... I don't pay any much attention to that. I'm, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm when, too busy when doing research on in, the run. When, when the band comes in dressed like the Three Amigos, I would have thought that you would realise that it's not a uh, trumpet, you know, like an umpa pol polka with, ah, for something no, special. No, no, no they, they, they slipped by me. So this week, anyway, this week I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm going to have a guess and I'm going to go for, I reckon you're going to go for a, like a maybe a, a Las Vegas lounge feel. So I'm going to put on a, a smart sports coat, perhaps some tweed, um, uh, and a, a, and get a an extra dry martini, a dust dry martini, and I'm going to kind of channel Frank Sinatra. Well, we'll the, the band has started, so we'll uh, 
<laughs> see how good you were. Prof, always a Uh-oh. pleasure. Talk to you again. <laughs> right. Talk to you next week. I'm going to go get changed. All right, so yeah, see you, okay. listeners. Take care.